0: Wherever you listen to podcasts, ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.
1: Welcome to Face to Face. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We have another uh, very special guest here today that I recently met at a conference in Toronto. Believe it or not, at the Toronto City Council uh, um, Chambers at City Hall. And his name is Pramod Sharma. Thanks for joining us today.
2: My pleasure. Thanks yeah. for having me on.
1: Oh, you're you're welcome. It's I think it's going to be really interesting. We're going to talk about trust today. We're going to talk about mentorship. We're going to talk about maybe taxation uh, as well. Who knows? Uh, we're going to get into some interesting topics, entrepreneurship, um, and and uh, probably a few other things that we both don't even know yet what they are going to be. The, the mysteries are about to be revealed. So we met at the Global Change Initiative, which was a conference that was held a couple of weeks ago, where a group of uh, speakers came, disparate speakers, I would say, promote, came together to talk about the way forward, How are we going to change the world? How are we going to turn it upside down? What are we going to do together from a social enterprise perspective, from a social entrepreneurship perspective and so on? And um, and I want to hear a little bit about your talk that you gave and maybe maybe that's a, a good place to start. But before we go there, can you tell me what what exactly I mean, promote is a, a an insurance actuary. For a, a million dollars, I really couldn't tell you what that is. Um, can you can you help me and my listeners? Uh, what what what
2: is an actuary? You, you like numbers, basically. I, I know that much. Well, an, an actuary is a person who's trained to measure and manage risk, and we're surrounded by risk all over the place. In my case, I focused on insurance, primarily life and health insurance. What
1: other kinds of risk?
2: Like, uh, so like, are there? Um
1: I mean, do actuaries get into gambling, uh, do, do, you know, uh, um, are we talking about car accidents, uh, you know, that those types of risks as well, yeah, I, like economic, fiscal stuff? Well, I mean, I understand it with an insur- from an insurance perspective, what are the odds of this house burning down? Can you tell me a bit more about
2: the whole actuarial uh, yeah, uh, world? Yeah, actuaries tend to be involved in the financial world, insurance is a key place, but also looking at the effects of climate change. What does that do to claims? So it's built on the world of statistics and probabilities. Um, So actuaries are not well-known outside the insurance world, but they can be valuable in many different places. So
1: um, I don't think it was. Mark Twain who said this. In fact, I know that it wasn't, but he's, you know, I mean, pretty much any time you hear a quote that you're not sure who it is, just attribute it to Mark Twain and you're probably going to get it right. Or Abraham Lincoln. Or Abraham it's more Lincoln, serious. Yeah, yeah. Or Brad Pitt, I think. I'm not sure, yeah. Haven't tried him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what is the line? There's lies, there's damned lies, and then there's statistics. Sounds like Twain. It does sound like Twain. I think I don't think it is. But anyway, so do you believe that?
2: Well... I think that numbers can be tortured into saying anything you want them to say. It's just a question of how you present them. And I'm, I'm leery of how things are presented. Uh, as an actuary, I feel I have a responsibility to, pre- to present information in a way that's fair and objective and not let my own biases get in the way of what I'm presenting. So for instance, if you see a study done by the tobacco industry, right, well, what right. is that going to say? Or the soft drink industry? Right, so, in a way, the data gets used to promote whatever goals they are trying to achieve. Well, is,
1: isn't that politics now? Politics is driven by the poll, isn't it? I mean, aren't, are, don't uh, liberals do what liberals do because polls say they should? And don't conservatives not do what they should do because polls say they should or shouldn't? Isn't, isn't it, so, aren't we kind of, in a way, driven by those stats and numbers? Well, that's the dilemma, Uh is that
2: ultimately everyone is being paid by someone, and that employer wants a certain result, and you know what that result is. You can look at it in auditing, for instance, that if you do an audit a particular way, then maybe you don't get hired by that company again, but maybe the way you're doing it was the right way. So you always have these conflicts of interest. So
1: you know, that's really interesting, and the phrase that just came to mind was cooking the books. I mean, is there a sense in which we're all kind of cooking the books? In a way, I mean, that whole phrase, I don't even know where that phrase came from, but the idea is that, you know, as an accountant, you can make the numbers say whatever you want. So when it comes to audit time, you know, if you want to, you know, want to deal with the auditors, well, just, you know, ask your accountant to get a little creative and, you know, carry the two and <laughs> and you're all set. Um, would you, you know, so, I mean, it, to me, it sounds like you're saying if you pay a particular person, you'll get a particular message or you'll get a particular answer.
2: Well, there's certainly the person will be influenced towards a particular example. So, for instance, in an insurance company, you'd have the chief actuary typically being on the executive team of the company, and the executives get bonuses. And bonuses depend on certain things like sales, profits, et mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so on one hand, you've got the pressure to do things as accurately as you, as you can. On the other hand, you've got these financial incentives. And despite best interests, it's hard to do what the right thing is when there's something there in the background. Dan Ariely has written extensively about how we get affected in ways we may not even realize. Hmm. And for instance, doctors are considered to be objective, but it seems that by giving them small gifts over a period of time, the pharmaceutical companies can influence the types of prescriptions they give. And it's not that the doctors are trying to do anything bad, but once you start building a relationship, once you start having incentives, then it can affect results. Yeah, I mean, if the
1: pharmaceutical rep is attractive, and is nice to me and invites me to the odd golf game and gives me baseball tickets for my son. Probably going to think of their drug before somebody else's, even if I'm the most ethical doctor in the world. Mm-hmm. I think. I think. I mean, the whole notion is that we can be a, you know, you mentioned earlier, and I think this is where I'm going, you know. I want to get back to the whole idea of measuring and managing risk. But you talked about, about trying to be as fair and objective as you can and try to remove your bias. Do you think that's even possible? based on this idea of, you know, a doctor being objective, maybe not so objective because of the the pharmaceutical rep that they're being influenced by?
2: Well, it's an area I've been very interested in understanding better, because I'm from the financial sector, and their advisors look like they're on the side of the buyer, but they're being paid by the seller. And it creates a dilemma because the buyer doesn't necessarily know what incentives the seller is receiving and how those incentives could affect the results that the buyer gets. And that's something that's bothered me because people do need financial advice and maybe they think it's of a higher quality than it actually is. And so I was looking at other industries to see what the standards are because advisors are not technically fiduciaries which means they have no legal responsibility to put the buyer's interest first they won't necessarily do bad things but they can look out for themselves and if you look at fiduciaries you look at doctors lawyers engineers accountants etc they are to put the clients first but then when you look at the research you see how difficult that is so i don't think there's a way to guarantee that the buyer's interests come first The solution that I use is to provide education. I figure that people are knowledgeable and if they understand how things work, they can make their own decisions. And just being aware that there are conflicts that we may have difficulty overcoming helps people. So for instance, I focus on life and health insurance. So you show me a problem and the hammer I use will say that, okay, insurance is part of the solution. Those are just the lenses I have. And as long as you're aware of that, you'll understand why I'm saying that. So it's not that I'm trying to be bad or biased, but that's how I see the world. So we all see the
1: world in a particular way. But I think, you know, I mean, it's kind of like Edgar Allan Poe's Purloin per Letter. You know, in the story, it was hanging right there in front of everyone to see, but nobody could see it. And so Michael Polanyi uses this. I've probably spoken about this before in a podcast, but he talks about that with respect to knowledge and understanding. And so if we can't see our lenses and yet we're looking through them, how do we ever know? How do we stand back and say, okay, today I'm going to be a little more objective and I'm going to say, ah, you know what? I do actually like that pharmaceutical representative more than the other one, but I actually think the other one's drug is better, <laughs> right? Yes. You know what I mean? We don't live our life like that, I don't think. And, and it's like this idea of, of um, logic, when people say to me, "Oh, gee, you're not being logical, David," or you know, or I say to my wife, Elizabeth, "You're not being logical," which I don't ever say. But um, <laughs> wise I, man, yeah. But if I was to say that, what I would really probably mean is, you don't make sense to me. It has nothing to do, actually, with logic. If that makes does that make any sense at all? So this I it's like I think promote. I'm trying to get to this notion that we think we can quantify everything. We think that there's a mathematical statement or formula that is equatable or synonymous with our, the reality that we come across every day. And the, fa- the fact of the matter is, we're dealing with human beings here. We're dealing mm-hmm. with relationships. They're compl- complicated, they're paradoxical, they're difficult to wade through. People are jerks, uh, people are wonderful, you know? So how, how do you distill that down when you've got this way of seeing the world?
2: Right, and I think that's where the whole world of behavioural economics arose, because we were told that we don't do things in a logical way. Right, right. And then Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky studied that extensively, and that's another area that I've been quite interested in, is how people do make decisions, because they are not logical. And when our own abilities get impaired, we don't even notice. So there's research saying that when pe- some people get to their 60s and 70s and are making financial decisions their cognitive skills may not be as good as they were when they were younger, right. but they can't tell. And then if you're a, a daughter or a son and you're trying to help them out, and you're saying, well, mom or dad, you need to do this differently or something, that doesn't work because they can't see that. Right, right,
1: it's, I've, I've heard this before with things like racism, for instance, you know? mm-hmm. or even things like, we'll probably get into it a little bit, but the notion of fair trade, for instance, my parents, Uh, grew up in an environment that was probably a lot more racist than than I hope the environment I grew up in. Um, And it was just the culture, right? You know, you would refer to people in a certain way that you wouldn't think Mm. was racist or Mm -hmm. wasn't. it had nothing to do with political correctness or incorrectness. It was just the way we were, you know, at this time. My parents never would have thought of fair trade coffee. Well, what's that? It's just coffee, right? Mm -hmm. So you can't know what you don't know kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. So in the same, so how do you break people out of that? From And I, I mean, as we move into this interview more, I mean, we're here, I hope, to talk a bit about social
2: change and entrepreneurship and so on. How do you get from here to there? Well, I found that you can't help people more than they want to be helped mm. at the time. And I learned that when I became a manager. Ultimately, I had 10 staff. And I would see things in people that they didn't seem to see in themselves. I saw they they could do more than they were doing. And in the beginning, I provided them guidance to help them achieve these goals. And that didn't work well because they weren't happy. And I realized that they are where they are because of who they are or who they want to be. And I couldn't really change them. I could only help the ones who wanted to know. And I think we have unprecedented opportunities to help people change Hmm. through The online world that we're in. Love it. I don't even know what I just
1: said. You said unprecedented opportunities to help people
2: change. That's great. That should be the subtitle of your new book. (laughs) (laughs) When I have a book, then that's that's something I'll I'll keep in mind. Uh, And now we have the ability to communicate with the world, whether it's through text, audio, video, whatever the mechanism And we can learn a lot from people like us. We don't have to rely on the experts and the biases they may have. We can hear from everyday people. So for instance, when you're buying your audio equipment or like I'm getting cameras, then I'm not just reading reviews by experts, I'm reading reviews by actual people. And that helps me understand things. If you look at change, it seems to be happening much faster than ever. An example would be, The cell phone, for instance, Mm -hmm. where no one had one 10... Well, okay, maybe people had cell phones 10 years ago, but not so many. And now the majority seem to have smartphones. And when you have access to anytime information, wherever you are with mobile internet, it helps you get information when you want it. So I I think that people are getting very good at adopting new ways of looking at the world. Uh, When I grew up, uh, like, I'm a vegetarian and when i grew up people had no idea what that was like it would be well oh you look normal to me or how do you get your protein things like that now it's accepted so when i look at people in the last generation you can see how much change they've had to undergo and for the most part they've undergone it well i guess the last example i would give is that i grew up in london ontario and that's too bad well I can't do anything about that now. I'm kidding. <laughs> I don't even know why I said that. Yeah. Well, I, I think I was expecting. I grew up in London, England, and then I was just kind of disappointed by the whole Ontario thing. Yeah. There's a London in England, also. There is, in fact. yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's. Oh, I'll make a note of that. <laughs> and until high Gotta school, get out more. yeah. Until high school, I was the only non-white kid that right. I had seen, sure. or that my yep. friends had seen. Yep. It wasn't until high school that I saw someone who was black. And he was from the Caribbean. He had a British accent. Like none of these things made sense. Yeah, sure. And sure. so growing in a, growing up in an environment like that, to coming to a place like Toronto where there's so much diversity is a big change. But in our city here, people do seem to get along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do. They do for the most part, at
1: least. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanna I wanna make a connection between this idea of risk. Um, You know, you use the phrase adopting new ways of looking at the world. You know, you feel that, you know, because of, I guess, the benefits of globalization, the more positive aspects of globalization, because people have access to information and phones and so on, um, you, you sort of made the link that you thought that people were adopting new ways of seeing the world, which I think is a delightful notion. I'm not sure that it's true, only because I still think we're all kind of, looking at our own navels i still think there's a lot of navel gazing i think we're all you know i look out your your window here and you don't have a fence well most people seem to right and they keep themselves kind of boxed in and so on and they're not really thinking about beyond their own backyard they're not thinking about others primarily it's about their own sort of circle of influence which is not necessarily a bad thing but i think one of my projects going forward and i have no research on this is You know, why don't we think about others more? Is there there an inherent risk
2: there? Can you talk about that at all as an actuary? Um, I I love the word actuary, by (laughs) the way. It just sounds good. I can talk about that as a person, but I don't have actuarial training that gives me any special skills. Our lives have become very busy, Mm -hmm. uh, much busier than I recall as a child. And they seem to be getting busier all the time. And I think as a result, we don't have as much time to think about things. That when I grew up, then it was common to have one parent at home, for instance. Mm -hmm. And now it's common to have both parents out. And when both parents are out, then maybe the food isn't as good. There's less time with the children. So there are pros and cons to that. The parents don't have the same level of influence that they Mm -hmm. did when one was at home. And maybe because of that, there's greater exposure to other ideas and other people. But it does seem that change does happen quickly, at least more quickly than it did in the Mm -hmm. past. Mm -hmm. And I tend to be optimistic Mm -hmm. about things. Mm -hmm. Which is good.
1: Do you think it's just change for the sake of change, or do you think it's actual intentional kind of... forward thinking kind of change I mean change is inevitable you know <laughs> the tree outside's growing the, uh, the the wind is blowing you know my son is getting older I'm getting older etc so we're all chain you know what did Heraclitus say you can't step in the same river twice so but are we moving in a better direction in a more positive direction is it environmentally a good thing is it is it fiscally a good thing is it uh, uh, you know um, internationally a good thing
2: Yeah, the way I see it, it, I feel that we are moving in a positive direction. And I look at how conscious people are becoming of consequences of things they do. Hmm. Like, when we came to Canada, like, I was just two years old, and my parents were very big on things like recycling, Hmm. which people just didn't do. People people did not recycle. No. (laughs) Yeah, so... Yeah. So recycling just seemed odd to people here because it just seemed that you just buy things and you'd throw them out and my parents weren't like that, that you'd save like, like corn, like the, the, the cob could be used to seal a bottle, just a lot wow. of things like that. Mean. And I would uh, say that was, would have been pretty rare.
1: I would say you grew up in a home that was not like many others at the time.
2: Right, but if you look at it now, we do have recycling. Yes. We have our green yep. bins and yep. blue bins. Yep. And But before the idea of, ooh, I'm going to take my garbage and put it in something different, yeah. who would do that? Yeah, well, wasn't there a time when, when recycling started around here? You had to box, you had to actually strap
1: up cardboard, you had to wash out jars. Do you remember that? Yes. Time You had to separate everything, and now at least you can dump it all in the same place. So, you know, we've come a long way from a recycling perspective, but... but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's that fair trade conversation, right? My parents mm-hmm. would never have considered a fair trade cup of coffee. And yet, what's interesting, as I've done more research in these, you know, social justice-like issues, um, there was, you know, back in Wilbur, William Wilberforce's time, you know, uh, you know, when he was fighting against slavery, um, fair trade sugar was a big deal. You know, oh, really, pe- yeah, and people actually boycotted sugar that wasn't based on fair trade ethical principles. And uh, I only re- realized this fairly recently, but so these things have been around for a long time. So the notion of ethics has been around for a long time. But but I think I think some of these things do take a while to to embed themselves. You know, uh, not just in popular culture, but in the way we you know the way we think and the way we we live. Um, why do we love numbers so much? Why do why we do love, we numbers, so love numbers so much? I mean, you must have a, a, a pretty uh, compelling
2: argument as to why I should be more of a mathematician. <laughs> I don't know that people do love numbers. No, But I think numbers bring a certain level of credibility, especially if you add a few decimal places. It makes, right. it makes things just more real. Uh, I think interest in numbers varies among people. In my mind, mathematics is a language, and... I have this interest in language and so I guess I feel a little more attracted to it. But the funny thing in my case is that I've always liked words more than numbers and you tend to get stereotyped as an actuary, you almost, all you do is you look at numbers mm-hmm. all day. But in my career, the number part was the one that brought me the angst because I could look at a page of numbers and they wouldn't speak to me. I couldn't tell what number was off or what to do about something if it was off. But if you gave me a page to read, then I could think of, well, this could be said differently, that could be done differently. And that's okay, because we need different kinds of people in the world. Yeah, I mean, just the, the cliche, right? Numbers don't lie. I, I mean, I think that, I,
1: I don't believe that for a second, based on our earlier conversation, right. and the, the potentially the, the Twain quote, but, but we do seem to operate as if numbers don't lie. So, you know, in, in the field that I'm in, in development and so on, it's all about quantification. It's all about your results, David. Tell me what impact you're having, you know, uh, detail. Tell me how much, how, by, by what percentages you've reduced waterborne diseases in this particular area or how has uh, childhood education increased and tell me the numbers. I want to know how many students you taught, boys and girls, but I also want to know if, you know, the literacy rate, is it up by 32% or is it 45 and, and funding is based on this. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't use numbers, but I wonder sometimes if it lacks an edge. I find it interesting that you, that you said uh, numbers don't really speak to you in the way that language does. And I think that's fascinating because I think the way forward is we need to start injecting more humanity into our numbers, into our quantification. And so I just wrote an article recently and I said, when are we going to realize that everything that's quantifiable is actually on some level qualitative?
2: That's exactly what I wanted to get at, is that we measure what's simple, we don't measure, Mm, and we can't measure what's important. Nice. So, for instance, in the work that you're talking about, how do you measure the peace of mind of someone who now knows that their health is better, or they now have clean drinking water, they don't have to worry about parasites in it? Uh, you can measure the percentage reductions in pollutants and all these different things, sure, yeah. but levels of arsenic and this kind of stuff, yes, yeah, which
1: is important, which, yes, and i don't want to I don't want poo poo that at all, but
2: mm-hmm. but unfortunately we can, we don't have measures for the qualitative aspects, and those ultimately are more important
1: and do you think there's a way to do that? Is there a way to measure this stuff i mean a, a development expert a, a a statistician would probably say yes, there are ways of. Uh, measuring change and measuring, you know, attitudes and sh- so on. But, but ultimately there's are they are qual and and you know what's really interesting I love the connections in our in our discussion today because now we're kind of back to lenses. And connections, because you've got your interviewers now who are taking down the information and ticking off the boxes, the scales from 1 to 10, and they say, so tell me, tell me, has your level of understanding with regard to the English language shifted? Oh, yeah, I'm a much, you know. And so you put a 7 out of 10 instead of a 9 or instead of a 5, right? Mm -hmm. So we've quantified this person's response to our whatever study or uh, project, and yet ultimately it was based on my understanding of their... Understanding if right. that makes any sense, at and
2: all. it could be the way the questions are being asked. It could or be the order way, in and which they're being and asked. And maybe I didn't is, write
1: those questions. Maybe right. somebody else wrote those questions, and now you're talking about their filters, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's a very complicated thing, I think. And yet we seem to. I mean, I get it. I guess I guess you're right. Numbers are easy. I love what you said. We measure what's simple. I think that's something that uh, donors need to hear. I think it's something that, that our government needs to start thinking about more. I mean, I think it's in a way, um, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but in, in Orwell's book, 1984, he talked about the notion of doublethink. And, you know, we, mm-hmm. we know something to be a particular way, but we still believe it's another way. And
2: we're okay with that, because we can sleep better yes. at night. Right? Yeah. <laughs> there was a book called Bounce by, I think, a Matthew Syed. And, like, he was an Olympic-level... I think, ping pong player, if I remember correctly. Is that right, eh? My son and I basically uh, were introduced
1: to ping pong this year in Panama, no less, and absolutely had a blast.
2: Uh, I found a game to play with, Spencer, that is just, it's so much fun. Ping pong is great. Mm -hmm. Anyway, sorry. Now, in that, he talks about the idea of doublethink, that how in sports it's essential, so that Mm. when you're playing, you have to believe that you're going to win. But then you know from your track record that you only win X percent of the time. And Interesting. You, so you can't have both of those beliefs at the same time, yet you have to have those beliefs, otherwise you won't get the results. Uh, so yeah, it's a fascinating topic, this double-think idea, and we are good at it. It just shows that we're filled with contradictions.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's true. I was on your site um, uh, just this morning, and, and I mean, so here are some of the most important lessons I've learned, you say. Um, do what others won't, keep improving and making improvements, study a fast-moving subworld. Uh, what does that mean? Coach and get coached, uh, begin with the end in mind. This doesn't sound like an actuary to me. What's going on here on <laughs> your website, uh, Promote. Well, uh,
2: I There's tend- no. There's no
1: numbers here. <laughs> We're here for four... Oh, hang on. We're here for four purposes. So there's the first uh, numerical uh, notion... To live, to love, to learn, to leave a legacy. I mean, this is wonderful stuff, but... but that's Covey. I didn't come up with oh, that. Oh, that's Covey. Okay. But still, <laughs> that's funny. That's Stephen Covey, by the way. Yeah, Stephen so, Covey, um, yeah. The father, that, the one who's The father. Away. That's, is that from the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People or something like that? Yes, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I, I want to get to that, um, but what's going on here? This is not actuarial in nature or tone.
2: Well, I don't know. I've... I've always felt that I've had things I wanted to say, and I simply never had an outlet before. Mm -hmm. And the people I worked with and the people I knew weren't necessarily the right audience. But I've always felt that there are people out there that would be interested in some of the things I want to communicate. And on my personal website, I've just put down some of those things. And it's fascinating how people will respond. Like, I haven't looked at that page in a long time, but that was something important to me at the time. If I were doing that today, it would probably be a blog post, but I think I did right. that before right. I started blogging. Right. Right. Um, so I just figure that uh, what I'm trying to do in a roundabout way is help people that I've never even met hmm. and probably never will meet. And if you think there's some value in what I've said, then that's great, because I wanted to do things that would reach other people. In essence, what I'm trying to do, if you look at it from a marketing point of view, um, the world of business, is polarize people. Hmm. So before someone meets you, if they can so get So hang on,
1: hang on. You want to polarize people?
2: Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Uh, and please. I, I don't mean in a, like a, like a rude way, but right. I want people to have enough information about me that they'll feel that here's someone I don't even want to meet. Like, they're just not for me at all. And others will say, well, I, that, I agree with that. That's the sort of person I want to know. And I would rather that people figure that out ideally before we've even met, hmm. because that way the cost is the lowest to all the parties involved because hmm. when you meet someone the first time, everyone's putting up airs right like they're all like yeah. they, they're not really being themselves they're not being themselves right there's a, almost a lack of authenticity a little doublethink going on maybe yes, and yeah. when you put things in writing, I just find that I could I feel more genuine that this is what I really want to say and if I say that, some people will like it, others will not. But the general feedback I get, which I find is what I wanted to achieve, is people will say that when they meet me, I'm the way they expected me to be. Right. Right. Interesting.
1: Um, Promote is a blogger, he is a podcaster, uh, he's got a lot of information, a lot of stuff online. Check, uh, check out his site at taxevity.com. Uh, T-A-X-E-V-I-T-Y dot com. Sounds like he's coined a new word. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. But uh, insurance, actuary, but also uh, uh, literary guy. Maybe more of a language guy than a numbers <laughs> guy. So check him out. Taxevity dot com. There's a lot of interesting stuff there on his site. Why do you want to help people you've never met? Who cares? Why would you want... I mean, wouldn't you want to help people you meet? A... And why would you even want to help those people? Like I guess what I guess what I'm trying to get to, and that's something that's part of my own project, is this idea that um, um, there's no shortage of opportunity to help others. There's no shortage of opportunity to, especially in the, the majority world, the work where I do most of my work, Cambodia, Africa, etc., Southeast Asia. You know, the whole idea of wealth is very different there uh, in Cambodia than it is here in Canada. Uh, what, what what we put prior you know I did an interview with somebody recently who said if you brushed your teeth this morning with clean water then you are rich and I wow. thought that was kind of an yeah. interesting statement and I think there's a ton of truth in that um, I think uh, and, and what it, it helps for a whole lot of reasons because it doesn't reduce this whole idea of wealth just to numbers again it's not just about cash mm-hmm. it's about more than that it's about quality of life and, and it's about it's about being holistic and comprehensive but I I live my life between being really affirmed and encouraged and then really discouraged and down. So seven days out of ten, I'm going to turn the world upside down. And then three of those ten, I just think, why am I even bothering? Because no one else is on board. Nobody else cares except about themselves. Mm. Not true, but sometimes it sure seems that way. So tell me why you're caring about people that you've never met before.
2: Well, part of this has to do with the stereotypes of... Actuaries. Right. I was never a people person. Right. And right. I didn't know how to network or like, even do things like interviews a few years mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. That was just so outside my comfort zone. But I could sit down in front of, I was going to say typewriter. But <laughs> yeah. Whoa. How <laughs> but ke- old are you? <laughs> yeah. But keyboard. That's there you go. That's better. iPad. <laughs> and I could express myself through the words there. Am I going to find a dot matrix printer in your office, uh, Pramod? <laughs> no, no, uh, color laser. <laughs> oh, good, nice. Glad to hear it. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but I've ever since I was a child, my parents have said we're here to make the world better. Hmm. And I've seen through them the things that they've done to help other people. And so whenever someone needs help they come across, they're there to help them. Uh, I recall once we were on Bathurst Street near Eglinton and there was a car ahead that had stalled Mm -hmm. and I was with my dad and so my reaction is this guy's on the road he's slowing us down I wish he'd just get out of there (laughs) Right. right and then my dad said let's stop and give him a push right and that's not the sort of thing that would have come to my head but that's the kind of people they are and so they do work to help people personally, in India, like they have a school for disabled children, oh, wow. like okay. which is a disadvantaged group, and, and young girls, because they need job skills so that they're not dependent and give them some, some education. So they've done things like that. I could never do that. That's just not me. But I can help people in other ways. And I feel that writing, for instance, is a mm-hmm. way to, to do that. So I think we just find our own mechanisms. And through that, I've learned that I can meet people. Yeah, sure. and you break some of the ice because they've already maybe read something about you or something that you've written and feel that it speaks to them in some way. Or at least they like the fact that you've take, had the courage to express yourself.
1: Uh, on your site, you have a phrase, trust and insurance literacy. What, why, is, why is trust uh, an, an important part of this? I mean, is, is that, um, are you talking about the kind of fiscal trust that I have in my um, banking uh, institution that I work with?
2: Or are you talking about another level of trust? I'm talking about trust at the personal level. Huh. That if you look at the Edelman Trust Barometer, then year after year, they show that the financial sector is the least trusted in the world. <laughs> well, it's not that, meant to be funny. I just find
1: that really funny.
2: I just, Funny in the sense that yeah. you believe that or that you're surprised? I'm not surprised at all, but yet it's where we seem to put our, most of our value. So I just I love the irony of it. Right, and the financial... What do you
1: call it, by the way, the Edelman Trust Barometer? Edelman
2: Trust Barometer, so E-D-E-L-M-A-N. They they do one every year. Okay. And the financial sector is also very important to people because we're living longer, we have to worry about money, etc. And I find that people are aching for help when it Hmm. comes to money matters, and they don't know where to go.
1: Yeah, I think that's very true.
2: They're talking to people who say they're advisors but who are really just salespeople not that there's anything wrong with that and they don't know where they can get the right answers they don't know who is really on their side because for five years i was helping top advisors across the country sell more insurance we'd be sitting in a meeting with the client and the client is turning to the advisor because the client doesn't really know what to do And the advisor is making suggestions and then after the meeting, I'm meeting the advisor and we're saying, well, okay, if we sold this option instead of that, then there's more money for you. Right. Now, the way insurance products work, uh, because I've designed products and I've helped advisors sell them, the insurance company gets their margin no matter what's sold. That's just built into the price. For the advisor to get more, the client has to get less. There is no other way. And the client doesn't know what the options are. They don't understand what the incentives to the advisor are. And it makes it really hard for people to make the right decisions. And that's something I've struggled with because I feel that my obligation is to the general public. Mm -hmm. And they just don't know where to go. And I thought blogging would be a way to help them understand other options if they chose to look at those things. And I started in 2007 and then I felt that I was making a contribution. I have nothing against uh, the Buyer Beware model as long as the buyers can get good information that doesn't leave things out. The big issue is that when someone is telling you something, unless you're an expert in that area, you don't know what they've left out. Right, right. Well, again, it's back to, you know, here we go about a
1: thread, but you don't know what you don't know, right? So, you know, I've always said you can't ask I mean, you can tell a lot about a person by the nature of questions they ask. And in order to ask good questions, you need to know a little bit about the topic or or about the person you're having a conversation with. Or maybe in your case, you need to trust them. If you trust them, you don't need to know as much information, I suppose, because they're there on your behalf. Isn't that what an advisor is supposed to be? I mean, theoretically, it's kind of like your physiotherapist you've got to trust them with your muscles and your bones and so on, because if you don't, they're do probably doing more, da- they might be doing more damage than, than, than you know, because I, I mean, I've got a physiotherapist. I don't know anything about my shoulder muscles, but I know it's a mess and and I need help. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm i with you. I think this issue of trust is absolutely huge. I, I, I'm i fascinated by it. I, I don't think we, we trust very many people actually, um, and I think it comes out in our, uh, inability to be transparent, our unwillingness to be authentic in, in, in social settings, you know, and, and, uh, um, and, and with others in a, in, a, in a general way, you know. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, I, uh, I <laughs> we were out the other day and I've always found it kind of humorous that, that uh, if you're in a kind of a traffic jam, and there's somebody following fairly closely behind you and you start to indicate to go over into that lane. Typically what I've found, try this out, uh, that person now will speed up. Typically. Not slow down and let you in. No wonder we don't trust anybody. If that seems to be our mode, if that's our lens, if that's our perspective, it's all about me, it's all about myself, you know, oh, aren't we kind of screwed aren't we in deep trouble? Here you are very idealistic, which I love by the way, I'm with you hundred percent. Everyone knows who's listened to my podcast. They know I'm, I'm a hopeful cynic in every mm-hmm. sense of the word. I look around and I kind of, I don't know that I, I, I'm as hopeful as you are perhaps. Tell, tell me, tell me more about that. I mean, you're talking about mentorship and coaching and, 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 and trust and literacy and language. I mean, wow. Are you sure you're an actuary?
2: <laughs> <laughs> it says so on the wall. That's right. Well, I feel that when we're here, we are here to do something better, like yeah. leave the world better off than than we found it. And what I try to do is share the best of what I know for free. Hmm. And the reason I can do that is that I have a successful business, so that allows some free time. But I just feel that we can do more to help each other because each of us knows something that could help another person. Nice. And this ties in with the polarization, for instance. So if I'm meeting someone the first time, then typically it's in a business context and they're on LinkedIn. And I've been on LinkedIn a long time. They're generally a suggestion or two that I could make about how they could make their profile better or do something that would help them be more successful in their own business. Now that's unsolicited feedback, and some people will not appreciate that, hey, I never asked you, why are you giving me your opinion? And other people will feel that, wow, like I know all these other people and no one said that my photo was a little wonky. Now here's this total stranger and they've told me something that's valuable. And then all of a sudden they're predisposed to to following other advice that I give, because, uh, like, I'm in the business of advice. And if people won't listen to what I have to say, I don't mean they have to agree, but if they're not open to taking advice, then I can't help them. And I would like to figure that out as early as possible in the process for their benefit and mine. And I only, I mean, there are lots of different kinds of people in the world, but I only have to connect with people who have a similar worldview. Mm And so I can meet the people who will let me into that lane of traffic because that's the kind of people they are. Right, right.
1: Uh, You're not going to believe me, Pramod, but we've got to come to the end of our podcast. Um, Thank you so much for taking uh, some time today. Taxevity.com, that's... uh, We didn't even get to talk about that new word you've coined there. Uh, (laughs) T-A-X-E-V-I-T-Y. Is that tax and longevity?
2: It is. You're the is first it? person who's figured that out. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Quickly. Why 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 the two? Just because Well, yeah, you go. Well, you have to find a word that you can register as a domain name. And yeah, all the, of course. the yeah. existing words are, are yeah. taken. Yeah. Uh, insurance is something that helps with tax in ways that people don't expect. Yes. And taxes mm. go on forever. So tax has longevity. Nice. And you want to talk to people about something that engages them. And that's how that word arose. Nice. Check
1: out promotes a site. It's uh, taxevity.com. T a x e v i t y.com. He's a writer. He's a guy who loves numbers, but clearly loves language more, and wants to leave the world a better, uh, better off than than than, uh, uh, than he uh, found it when he when he came into it. Which I think is a really uh, wonderful notion. Uh, it's environmental. It's it's sustainable. Ultimately, and it's holistic. And, Thanks for joining us today. Once again, another guest proving to me that there is way more going on than meets the eye.
2: Thanks, Ramon. My pleasure. Thank you.